looking at verses 12 through 14. But the context is 8 through 16. The Apostle Paul has begun uh, answering some questions that were posed to him by the church in Corinth. And that's where we're at. Um, Let us pray and then read our text. Father, we come now to, to hear from you. Lord, how would you instruct us? How would you guide us? Father, the issue of marriage in the church this day, sadly, is no different than it was at the time of the church in Corinth. Father, we who are married to this day, Lord, let us understand the stewardship that has been graced us with a spouse. Father, those who are single this day, may they know the stewardship of being single. Father, as we look at a text that deals with unequal marriages, Lord, may the saints understand what they possess in the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, may we understand that even Paul said as he wrote the church in Rome that we are more than conquerors. Open our eyes, open our hearts that we may hear from you and rejoice. To you and you alone, our Lord, in Christ's name, amen. Verse 8 through 16. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet to the unbelieving one, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Interesting text, interesting problem existing in the church in Corinth. And the Apostle Paul began in chapter 7, verse 1, regarding the questions. And he goes through a series of questions that he will deal with. Uh, chapter 7 deals with marriage. Um, 8, food offered to idols, the role of women, uh, and the Lord's table. Uh, through chapter 11. Um, so he, he's dealing with some stuff, but yet he's laid a foundation that too many times is neglected, the first six chapters. 
And the first six chapters really have to set a precedence, and I know you're probably getting tired of me reminding you, but I'm not going to stop, because if we don't understand the first six chapters, then you will get into some issues in later chapters. And um, I'm not an issue-oriented kind of guy, so I want us to think about some stuff. When a person comes to salvation, regardless of when you come at the chronological age, you bring in to that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ your understanding, your philosophy. What do you understand? What do you know? Um, if you were saved later in life, uh, you will bring, uh, you know, however many years of work you've been in, uh, whatever the society is that you've been in, whatever, if you've been in the military, uh, if you've been, uh, you know, maybe a volunteer in, in some organization, you will bring this all in to the process. We also live in a society where societal needs are quote unquote met by the government. And therefore, if I'm needing food stamps, I get food stamps. If I need help for this or uh, subsidized housing. So we always want to bring that stuff in. Okay. What happens is there's times I will bring my understanding, my wisdom in, and it will conflict with the things of God. That is the issue that is being dealt with in chapter 7. Marriage. In the Roman culture, there's basic four Four ways to get married. Okay, one is what they call tent companionship, meaning that I was a slave and this woman is a slave too, and I go ask my master if I can have that woman as my wife. The master may like me, and he says, sure, you can have her, and so we become tent companions. If the master chooses to separate us and sell us to different places, then he has that right. Another way is what you and I would understand as common law. If you were in a, an arrangement together for a year, uh, you could take one another's name and the benefits of being married. Uh, another way is an arranged, a financial wedding. If uh, 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 two fathers of separate families decided that financially we could arrange some kind of union between my son or my daughter and your son and your daughter, however we wanted to plan it, and there would be a financial statement made, there'd be some money involved, you know it, as a dowry, uh, and it would be exchanged in light of this arranged wedding. Then there was the noble wedding, with the noble class of the Roman citizens would draw together in a great ceremony and festival, that is basically what you see today in our marriages. Uh, the marriages that you see performed uh, in a church today, that ceremony uh, is basically comes from um, the Romans. Uh, it has really very little uh, biblical precedence for that, the exchanging of rings and the veil and the flowers and the cake and, and all the rest of it. That is what the church in Corinth looked like. Okay, But you also throw into the mix some of the stuff that you see in here today. We have it in our mindset, as would be in the church in Corinth, that if you are of a certain age and you are single, you need to get married. You need to hurry up. This is important. Uh, and the Jewish side of this actually was that if you weren't married, you were in sin against God because God had in Genesis 2 laid it out and it was really clear and you should be 
obedient to what God has said. Yet, this church was founded by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was single in his ministry years um, for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of debate on whether he was married or he wasn't married. Was he widowed? Da, 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 da. Um, I don't know. The Bible doesn't teach it. Okay? I can tell you what I have studied in my own studies to understand to be a Pharisee and to be a Jew. Uh, he was actually a part of the Council of the Sanhedrin. Um, he would have had to have been married. What happened to his wife? Pharisees were classified as very unique people, had a lot of social privileges. Perhaps at his conversion, she left him. I don't know. Perhaps uh, before his conversion, she died. I don't know. I don't have any idea. But I do know that for Paul's ministry, he never married again, if he was ever married. So if that man founded your church, what precedents would you be likely to follow? Okay. You also deal with some other things. What happens if you're married and all of a sudden somewhere in the middle of that you come to salvation? Can you stay married? Should you stay married? Should you run away? What should you do? And we'll deal with that. But I wanted to, to review 8 and 9 and, and that to the unmarried and the widows, this is good for them to stay as I am. Why? If you're single right now, stay that way. Stay that way. I gave you seven principles a few weeks ago on how to stay single and stay pure. All right? So stay that way. It isn't that big a deal. Don't let a bunch of people tell you that you're missing something. All right? God has you at this position. He has empowered you at this position for His purpose. Find His purpose, plug in, and you be used. All right? And if He has a, a, a time that He wishes you to marry, He will have you married. It's amazing to me that we believe God can save us, but He can't find us a spouse. But then I see a lot of things that we do that way. You know, I, I need to do this, but if I work overtime and accomplish this, then I can get this done, and I've never seen overtime work for the glory of the king. just doesn't happen. Why? Who gets the credit? You will take it. You may not take full credit for it, but you will say, I was available for the overtime shift, or whatever it is that you may proceed. To the married, this would be Christians, counsel to Christians married to Christians, 10 and 11, I give you this instruction, it's not I but the Lord, that a wife should not leave her husband. Why? Why would two Christians divorce? Well, believe it or not, it is very common. I shared with you last week that I have actually two, two couples that are not a part of this fellowship that I've been asked to be involved with that... Um, believe that God has called the husband to one ministry, the wife to another ministry, and they should divorce and live the sacrificial lives because God is obvious that God has laid it on their hearts. And I just said, really? Amazing. Why? And we believe that sometimes it's just more spiritual if I'm single. But then you'll find spirit, single people saying, it's more spiritual if I've been married. And I will call that the grass is greener syndrome. I think somebody's got something I want, and I would prefer to have that. 
Okay, people have asked me, um, would you have preferred to be single? Does it really matter? The Lord says I'm not single. I, 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 how, have you ever thought about the past, what you would change in your past? Now let me ask you a question. How easy is it to change? So why dwell there? I don't understand that. People want to say, well, if I can deal with this in the past, you can't fix it. The past is the past. Take what was given to you through the path of your past and say, so be it my king. I don't understand that. Okay? But he, what happens, group, this third group, 12 through 14, what happens if I become a Christian and my spouse is just a flat out pagan? What do I do? I mean, the Bible is clear that my home serves two masters. Okay? Can I divorce? Should I divorce? Um, maybe I need to separate from this pagan and find me a nice Christian and just, you know, make it all better. By the way, Paul, chapter 6 Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them a members of a prostitute? Do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit. If I am married to a lost person, If I have physical relationships with that person, am I joining Christ with Satan? Interesting thought. I'm one in Christ. I'm a member of the body. If a Christian joins myself to a harlot, I defile Christ. You said it, Paul. If I'm one with the Lord, do I defile myself? Do I defile Christ? If my spouse is not safe, if I continue in this marriage, am I a member and I am a member of Christ? I'm joining myself with a member of Satan. Interesting thought, don't you think? I mean, it seems relative. First of all, I want to clear up one thing. Chapter 7, verse 39. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Okay, have you heard the text that speaks of do not be unequally yoked in spiritual thing matters? And people will use that text to, to speak of uh, marriage. It's not has nothing to do with marriage. The context doesn't have anything to do with marriage. It has to do with idols. Uh, though I have seen men look at some women as idols, um, uh, we won't go there. The text says that if this verse thirty nine says that marrying an unbeliever is forbidden, an unbeliever can do nothing in the Lord. It's impossible. So to marry an unbeliever is a forbidden. And um, it's my responsibility and you who are children of God 
to prevent it whenever possible. Okay, some people just get obsessed, and um, all I can tell you is we have a number of mixed marriages in this building this day, and if you believe that you are called to marry an unbeliever, I will give you their phone numbers. And you can talk to them and ask them the joy and wonder of being married to an out-and-out pagan. Okay, a follower of Satan. Now, these people will not go and say, you know, my spouse is a follower of Satan. I happen to be a follower of Christ because that, that adds tension. Okay, so I just want to be clear right off the bat. Paul is dealing with a situation where two people were married. You know what's interesting about this? It still is amazing to me. How they became married is not the issue. Did you notice that? Whether it was tent companionship, whether it was common law, whether it was a financial arrangement, Paul just doesn't deal with it. You know what's really amazing is the New Testament doesn't deal with it. You know what's really amazing with it? The Old Testament doesn't deal with it either. He's just saying in light of where you are, here's how you are to be. I just thought that was kind of curious. What happens if I'm already married and one comes to salvation? That's the text. Verse 12, to the rest. What would be the rest? I have single Christians and I have married Christians. To the rest. All right? So it wouldn't be a single Christian. It wouldn't be married Christians. It would be illustrated that any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. All right? He says... I say, not the Lord. I dealt with this last week. Basically what the Apostle Paul says, I'm not quoting the law. I'm not quoting the Lord verbatim. Okay, I've already showed you that the Apostle Paul's writings are the same as God speaking. All right, we looked at that last week. If you want to hear that, you need to buy the, the tape or the CD. All right? I want, look what he says here. Verse 12. Any brother or wife has an unbeliever... And it says here, it's kind of, New American Standard, um, and she consents to live with him, right? Um, The literal Greek is pleased to dwell with him, okay? I kind of like that. And what I have found is, and then verse 13 says, a woman has an unbelieving husband. So he's dealing with a believer married to an unbeliever, male, female, all right, and they are pleased to dwell with them. Okay, and what I've found is some interesting stuff. Early church history, early history, and I'm talking about uh, after the first century, Christians were commonly accused of destroying homes and families. Okay. And what you will literally find is that the lost were very uptight about their spouses getting saved. Okay? More so wives getting saved. Uh, If you go look in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul took the gospel to Philippi, okay, the underbelly of... uh, he. There just wasn't a door open, so him and his little entourage went down to the river to pray. And what did he run into down there? That's The river was the, the, the laundromat. Okay? How many men do you ever see at a laundromat? 
Okay, men don't wash clothes. They wear them until they turn to dust and they buy another something or other. Um, so, okay. But then if you read your text, you'll see that Paul shared the gospel with these women and that some of them were prominent in the city. Now, you would think that if I'm going to affect the city for Jesus Christ, I would want to get into the leadership of the city. All right? I happen to be hanging out at the local laundromat. I preached the gospel, and I got some of these ladies saved. What was the outcome? They arrested him. (laughs) They throwed his butt in jail. Why? He was stirring up dissension. Where? If my wife, I'm the mayor of Philippi, and all of a sudden she comes home from the laundromat and tells me that this dude has showed me salvation and I'm going to have a good time and life is great and this, that, and the other, what are you going to tell her? What in the world have you been doing, woman? Right? Not only that, for a woman to change religion without her husband was unthinkable in the Roman and Greek culture. Okay, so to say that that Christianity has an effect on families to the point of sometimes destroying them, um, I see that. I see that. Tertullian, a historian, wrote this. Pagan husbands were very upset about this holy kiss propagated by the sect of Christendom. If you were a pagan husband and you thought about your wife going out and celebrating this religion with holy kissing, what would you do as a husband? This is a quote. I want not my wife creeping out at night, sneaking into prisons to kiss martyrs. Unquote. Yeah, I could get into that and be sure of this. Please be sure of this. There were some Christians who probably did not behave wisely. I think that if you note that the holy kiss does not exist in the evangelical church today, and I imagine there's a good reason for that holy kiss because all you have to do is put UN in the front of it, nothing to do with the United Nations, and it has become an unholy kiss. Okay? But you can be sure that there were Christians um, in mixed marriage who did not behave. I, myself, and some of you who've been in this church uh, as long as I have, have seen this happen. Um, married to an unbeliever, and I will do everything in my power to make that man, uh, and it tended to be men, I will make that man so miserable that he will leave me and I'll be free to remarry, and I've got my eyes on a couple of Christian singles now. Right? I've seen it. I, I've seen people who took the name Christ and I've seen the women literally force the husband out. Okay? Um, you know what? And I've got to be honest with you, it's not hard for me to sympathize with some of the pagan husband and pagan wives. Okay? Um, Paul gives us some divine counsel here. What happens if the unbeliever wants to stay? Consents to dwell with you. Pleases them to dwell with you. He says, don't divorce. Stay with them. 
let them stay. Wait a minute. What about being defiled? I don't want this union to bring defilement to the body of Christ. That's an interesting thought. Have you thought about that? How many times have you thought about God's presence and, of course, the world's presence all around, and who's the most powerful? Oh, don't give me your answer because you're sitting in church. I've seen your actions. I see people tell me they're battling with sins, and I look at them and say, die. Why? Christ has overcome the sin. Do we believe that? Which sin? Who's greater? I mean, the Bible even says, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. But what do we always say? Here's a question that I've had asked before, and I've seen it um, asked. um, Are you in a Christian home? Well, no. I'm the only one who knows the Lord in my home. You ever heard that? I've heard that. I'm the only one in my house. I'm the only one in my family who who come to salvation. Interesting. Verse 14 says the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife. You know what that means? Let me give it to you in a joke. How many Christians does it take to make a Christian home? Adam knows. <laughs> One. If you are a believer in a home, guess what? You're in a Christian home. Don't you find that fascinating? I find that fascinating. Why? We believe that I put one Christian in a home full of pagan people whose effect is there. No, that ain't what we believe. We believe that the dominant effect in the home is Satan. That's not true. The dominant effect in the home is Christ. Why? Who won the war? Christ did, but he didn't in my family. Well, perhaps you need to get saved. (laughs) Um, Everybody is sanctified by the presence of a believer. Do you understand that? You know why God has not passed judgment on this country? This country is still sanctified. There's only about a handful of us, but we managed to pull, hold it off. Why? Who's working? Christ is. Who's greater? He who is in me or he who is in the world? Let me show you this word. This is amazing to me because I, I don't, maybe I was the one who needed to be see, to see this. We have an ability that when we look at evilness, Okay? And when we look at the world, the world is under the father of lies. We see that. We know that. I can look around. I can turn the TV on. I can watch down the street, do whatever I want. And it's all obsessed with the things of self-gratification. So I see all this stuff. And so I think, how massive is this war? And then there's just me. Okay? But I'll tell you that it's not uncommon. Not uncommon. Remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? 
all day. Pour water. All right, my sacrifice. Cut it. Maybe God's not listening. Cut yourself. Pull open your shirt. Do whatever it takes. How's come God isn't doing anything? All right. Then he builds his altar. Right? He puts the stuff on there. Pour water on it. Just soak that bugger. Lord, here's the offering. And it consumed his offering and the prophets of Baal. Right? Who's greater? Really? What happens when Jezebel calls? Huh? What happens? I just watched gods bring fire out of heaven, just consume all these false teachers, and there's a woman wants to see you. And what was Elijah's response? I'm out of here. I'm going to go hide up under a tree and do my Elijah pity party. God is only me. Okay? And you know what's so cool about that? Every one of us in this room is guilty of it. We watch God pour out His whatever from heaven, absolutely obliterate the enemy, and then we go slink over someplace and go, this is terrible. I'm the only safe person in the universe. And he said, no, I have a remnant. And if you don't shut up... (laughs) No, he doesn't say that. (laughs) You will be the only safe person in the universe. Uh, All right, the word holy here, sanctified, depending on your translation, is set apart. It's set apart. Okay, now let me explain something to you. I've made the argument in the past that justification, sanctification, glorification equals what? Salvation. Okay, we like to say, well, I have justification. I live this life as sanctification, and then when I'm in his presence, I'll be glorified. That's not taught in the Bible. Alright, so it is possible, now I'll show it to you biblically, it is possible for sanctification to set in without salvation. Got it? Alright, if a husband doesn't believe, is he saved because he married a believer? Just because they married a Christian? Okay, smart people, okay, the theologian kind of people, they call this marital sanctification. Okay, and I'll show this to you. A believer becomes set apart unto God when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I am justified. What does that mean? I have His mercy and His grace. It's all under the blood. I am holy. I am set apart now from the world. The world is here. I've been taken out of the world and I'm right here. I, In the world, I am not of the world. Okay, not only that, in what God does in my life, what will happen is the glory of the risen king will be seen in me. Therefore, the glory is now. Uh, John 17 teaches it. All right, but I just want you to think about this stuff. When two people get married, what does God see? One. What if one's saved, one's not? What does God see? He sees one. Okay? The one of those who is a Christian, then he will bless that Christian in the sanctity, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And what happens to the blessing of sanctification? It spills. When God pours his blessings out, it just goes everywhere. He just pours it. Okay, if you're a non-Christian today and you have a Christian spouse, 
you should thank God. Because you have a home that is a recipient, recipient of the blessings of God. Did you ever think about that? How many times you thought about it? I never thought about it. See, we have it in our mindset that the evil's raging, and it is. But is God raging? God pours out his grace and mercy on that home just because one person is a believer. They receive the blessings of God. Now, I want to clarify, it is short of salvation. Short of salvation. Nevertheless, that would be a lot better than living in just a lost home. In Genesis 18, let me see if I can clear this up. Genesis 18, Abram had a conversation with God. I'm not going to turn to that. You can look it up yourself. And and they're discussing the city of Sodom. Right? And God says, I'm going to make charcoal briquettes of Sodom. All right? I am getting ready to pour my wrath on Sodom. And what was Abraham's response? If I can find 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare it? Do you get that? Do you understand what he just said? Sodom was a big city. If I find 50, well, then Abraham thought about it. He said, you know, I was down in Sodom last Friday night. How about 45? <laughs> if I find 40, well, wait a minute. How about 20? Well, you know, Lord, you're a God of mercy. How about 10? And then Abraham gave it good thought and said, you know what? The odds of me finding 10 righteous people in Sodom are, ain't no way. Okay. Did you see what happened there? Do you know what the implication is there? Ten righteous people in a city stays the hand of God's wrath. They weren't there. Just being around God's people mean you are a recipient of some of God's sanctifying blessings. You know, that's why I love the church. Okay? And I mean the body dynamic. I love it. Why? I get sanctifying blessings from your presence. I like that. I like it when God spills stuff on me, especially blessings. Well, maybe you don't. I do. I'm into it. Spill, pour, make a mess. Okay? First Kings chapter 15, verse 4. Because of David, God says, I will bless Jerusalem. What did Jerusalem do? Nothing. Why would God bless Jerusalem? A righteous man was there. One Christian blesses all that they are around. That's what he's saying here. We have it in our mind. If I'm a saved person in the midst of lost people, I am going to be defiled, overwhelmed, whooped, and all the rest of it. Now listen, if you think that you can hang out in the midst of defiled people all the time by yourself, all on your own, you will stumble. Okay, that's why God has given us the body of Christ He has also given us prayer, communion with God. He's also given us His Word. Now listen, if you spend more of your time with the lost people than you do the saved people, the odds are you will look lost. Okay? When God looks at a family that has a believer in it, 
God looks at mom and dad and the kids and he sees one. And he does not bless one independent of the rest. He pours his blessing on that child that is his and it will spill over on the rest. A non-believer really needs to thank God that they live in a home where God is at work. They really do need to be grateful. But part of the problem is um, one of the signs of lostness is they do not give thanks to God. Christian is married to an unbeliever that unbeliever is blessed by your presence. You know what the Apostle Paul says? If they're willing to stay with you, stay. Why? So God's blessing will be upon that home. Who knows? Maybe this marital sanctification may lead to saving grace. Who knows? God does. Okay, but Paul goes a little further because we still struggle with this because I've already dealt with the fact that when you enter into the bonds of matrimony, I just love to say that. You know, it sounds cool, doesn't it? I'm in the bonds of matrimony. What does that mean? Well, we like matrimony. Think about bonds, <laughs> okay? That's not candy. <laughs> it's not bond bonds. It is chains, brother. No. Um, it's when you enter into this 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 thing, this marriage, I am my body is no longer mine. It belongs to my wife, and my wife belongs to me. Okay, we kind of trade. And whatever she has desire of my body, I give, and whatever I have desire of her body, she gives. Okay, but what happens if that's an unbeliever? I read some writings that was kind of amazing that they were afraid to have children because they believed they would have a half-breed child. Okay? Half-Christian, half-pagan. I've seen children. They're all pagan. There ain't no half of Christ in them. Wild animals, I've seen them. You just watch them. Even when they're the little darlings at 2 o'clock in the morning, how sweet are they? And what are they wanting? Feed me now and then take care of the consequences as I take a nap. Right? I mean, how self-centered is that? Has anybody ever seen a baby that's not absolutely, completely absorbed in itself? I've never seen a baby. Anyway. My husband isn't saved. How can I expose my child to the influence of the lost? Well, Paul deals with that. Look what it says. Otherwise, your children are unclean. What does that mean? If you separate, what happens to your children? They're unclean. If you stay, what happens to your children? They're holy. What? The same blessing that is poured upon you is poured upon the children. It's poured upon the spouse. Okay? The children are sanctified by the same grace that God has poured upon His people. Now, again, I'm going to give you that it's short of salvation because your believer doesn't guarantee your children will be saved. Doesn't guarantee. Don't get a written guarantee of that. Okay? But still, there is gracious life of God's blessings, isn't there? It's just poured right out on there. It's true of the child. It's true of the spouse. So from the standpoint of being married to an unbeliever, don't worry about being in a pagan home. Who has the greater effect on the home? 
Christ does. He will pour Himself into you. As He pours Himself into you, it spills. It spills. If you're the only Christian there, God says it is a Christian home. Okay? And God will pour His blessings upon you rather than you being defiled. They will be sanctified. I mean, let's be realistic. If we look at our country today, ask yourself a question. Is this a defiling country? Does this country blaspheme God? Does this country defile the presence of Jesus Christ? Well, without being a rocket scientist, absolutely. But you know what else is amazing about this country? It's sanctified. It's set apart. Uh, those of you who were, were with us when Pastor Paul come from uh, Burma uh, and <clears throat> spent some time with us. Uh, and an amazing man. And we were, I was taking him to the airport. He was preparing to leave. And, and uh, he asked me, uh, what, well, how can I pray for your country? And I said that God shakes this place so we get awake to the things of Christ. And he says, I can't do that. And I said, then why are you asking me? No, I didn't say it. Um, <clears throat> why? Why? Why can't you pray that? He says, you're the only country at this point in time that has the resources to get the gospel globally. Good point. God will pour His blessings upon you rather than you being defiled. They will be sanctified. Now, I've got to show this to you because this is not a new... Um, a new idea, all right? And I'm going to close with this little line of thinking. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, okay? We all know this. <clears throat> Moses has been kicked out of uh, Egypt. He's out being a sheep herder, all right? And he looks, and there's a fire on the mountain. And he goes to the mountain, and he finds a bush that's being that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. Verse 5 says this. Then he said, you know, uh, God calls for him in the midst of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he says, here I am. And then the bush says, or God says, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is what? Why is this mountainside holy ground? Because God is there. It isn't because there's a spot on the planet earth that is a holy spot. It is because God's presence is there. It is now holy. Okay? We all agree with that. We've seen Charlton Heston do that, and we know how that all looks. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writing a letter. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for pure spiritual milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Okay, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, Peter says you're going to be like a newborn babe, and you're going to have, you ever seen newborn babes and they're craving for milk? It's interesting um, because they want to grow. Part of that growth you see 
you will be putting aside malice and you'll be putting aside deceit and all the rest of it. All right? Because there's an issue at hand that Peter is dealing with. There's something going on that the Peter wants you to see. He wants you to understand. He wants you to embrace. Coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as what? Living stones. Are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Okay, what does he just say about Christians there? Pretty obvious. You are part of what God is building. The chief cornerstone was who? Jesus Christ. The text says not only was Jesus Christ precious to God the Father, but who else is precious to God the Father? Those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And you're part of a bigger a bigger project i shall say turn with me back to the letter to the corinthians corinthians 1 corinthians 6 verse 19 and 20 what's it say do you not know are you not aware of this if you're not paying attention you were sleeping in my sermon did you miss Sunday school? What? VBS didn't show you this? Did you not know that your body is what? Temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You have been bought and paid for with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Okay? Do you see a theme? Why was the ground where Moses stepped holy? Because God was there. Now then, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Beginning at verse 14, Paul picks up, he started to pray for him, and then he changed his mind. Uh, went into a big theological discussion, and then he picks it up. In verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant to you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. Stop right there. Okay? A Christian who is a precious stone, a royal priesthood, a temple of the living God, to offer up sacrifices for the name of Jesus Christ has power from where? Holy Spirit. Where at? Where's he located? Inner man. Inner man. Where's the inner man? That's my conscience. That's the seed of my emotions. That's where my attitudes come from. That's where my actions, that's my thinking processes are controlled. Everything that happens is my inner man. Okay, that's that part that nobody knows but you and the Holy Spirit. I'll be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Cool. I like that. 
So, we know for a fact, as Christians, that we are in the presence of the Spirit of the living God now. Right? Read on. So that Christ may dwell. That word dwell means at home. He's at home. He can hang with you. Okay, you're going to sit down and watch the NBA playoffs together. You and Jesus. Okay, he's comfortable. Okay, he has his sweats on and his house shoes and that raggedy old t-shirt. And you got your sweats on and your, you know, raggedy old t-shirts. And you and Jesus are like this and you're hanging together. And he is absolutely comfortable. Okay, how's he doing that? The Holy Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your where? Through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Stop right there. If I read that right, as I stand right here right now, I am in the inner man powered by the Holy Spirit. And He is doing what? He is opening up Christ to me now where? In my heart that I may understand that that can't be understood. That's what it says. That you will understand the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. Okay, so how do I understand the love of Christ? It surpasses understanding. Well, if I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit, then in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, He will do what in my heart? Make me understand that that cannot be understood. And Christ will do what in my heart? Read it. Live in my heart comfortably. He will be at home in my soul. Okay? Now watch. And you will be filled with all the fullness of... Who dwells in the inner being of the average Christian? I would call it the triune God. Which means where I stand is what? Interesting concept, isn't it? Why would I be worried about unbelievers defiling me? Simple question. I just thought that was interesting. Your spouse, your children will be sanctified but I ask that you be in prayer that this marital sanctification would lead to the gracious saving grace to bring your family to sanctification. When you love ones, put their faith in Jesus Christ. is the only way that's going to happen. The only way they can believe in Jesus Christ is through your life. If I am doing as Ephesians 3, 
14 through the end of the verse says, because he concludes, because it says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond what we can ask or think according to the power that works within him, to him be the glory where? Church. Okay, I like that because it doesn't say the parachurch ministry or anything like that. That is when the church of Jesus Christ stands up and everybody takes note. Why? Each person in the church, remember? You're each a precious stone being built into the tent, the tabernacle, the sanctuary of the living God, and all the world will look at it and say, Wow. Wow. Why? You can't defile me. Why? I am holy. Not only that, he who is in me is holy. Not only that, his holiness is poured out on me. And by the blessings by which I exist, I spill them on other people. How can you not want to be around Christians? Just a question. I prefer the blessings of the king. If you're married to an unbeliever, stay that way. Let them stay. Why? It is to their benefit. Why? The Holy Spirit and the inner man will strengthen me in such a way that the Lord Jesus Christ will be absolutely comfortable and dwell with me. He will be at home. He will be at ease in me. And God will do abundantly beyond what I could ever ask. And the literal translation is imagine. Imagine. I have a great imagination. He's already done more than I could ever ask. And he's already starting to overwhelm my imagination. Why? Because he will do it according to the power that is working within me. Why? Where I stand, where a Christian stands, is holy ground. That's why the Apostle Paul says, if the unbeliever is willing to stay, let them. And let them taste the blessings of the eternal God and perhaps they will come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you the praise for this. Lord, I don't understand this. Why you would take earthen vessels make them holy and pleasing before you. But Father, we thank you. Father, I thank you for your massive work of setting us apart. And yet, Father, I thank you that even in this body today, there are those who are married to unbelievers. Father, take that believer and strengthen their heart this day that they may understand the power in which they stand. Father, use their lives to show Christ. And Father, we beg for the unbelieving spouses of this fellowship that, Father, by your mercy and by your grace, you will open their eyes that they may see Jesus. And that, Father, your abundant grace and mercy will only be poured out that much more. To you and you alone, my King, in Christ. Amen.